Psalm 57 is where we continue in our study in the book of Psalms together. We're told in the prescript, the introduction of Psalm 57, that again, this was to be given to the chief musician, uh, set to, it seems, the melody or the tune uh, of Do Not Destroy. And I don't know if that was like a heavy metal type uh, tune or melody, uh, but that's what this psalm uh, was set to that particular tune or melody, uh, to Do Not Destroy. Uh, we're told it's another miktam of David. And again, as we said before, that term miktam literally just means golden. And some of these Psalms of David are given that title, a miktam of David. So again, whether that's the emphasis of the greater value, the Holy Spirit in some way is trying to indicate of some of these Psalms, you know, gold was something that represented great value, royalty, and the wealth of gold. That's kind of really what that term means, but we're told it's a miktam of David. And then of course, we get a little bit of a reference again of the setting of this particular Psalm. It says it was a miktam of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Now, there were numerous times in David's journeys that he found himself in the cave. He was in the caves in, in Gedi at different points in time. He also was in the cave of Adullam. First uh, Samuel 24 could be one of the backdrops to this particular psalm, but nonetheless, David in this time was in a cave. And again, I have not spent much time in caves. There have been a few occasions in my life when I've been in a, a cave-like area, and typically a cave is somewhere that is dark. Uh, it's somewhere that a lot of times, you know, is kind of damp and cold. It's not really the most pleasant experience. If you try and lay down or get comfortable, caves are carved out of rock. So it's kind of a, a analogy in a lot of ways of a cold and dark and difficult and hard place to be. Uh, and here we find David at different times was hiding out, remember, in the caves because he was on the run from Saul, who was constantly hounding him and tracking him down. David was kind of living for a while like a refugee. He was on the run, hiding out in different caves in Israel because Saul, who was incredibly jealous of him and very insecure, was trying to put David to death. Now, we do know the one occasion when David was in a cave and he almost had a close encounter with Saul. It says here that this was the time when he fled from Saul into the cave. It could be an occasion referred to here. We know one of the occasions where David was in a cave and it says that Saul, as he was pursuing David with his men, uh, that God uh, sort of stirred Saul's bowels or bladder in that moment and he went into the cave. The Bible tells us to relieve himself, and David and his men were actually hiding out in that very cave. And Saul didn't know that. And as he went into that cave, he was right within, no doubt, striking distance of David. And if you remember, it tells us that some of David's men saw this as a divine opportunity. They saw it as the occasion that God was giving David's enemy into his hands. And so they encouraged David, look, Apparently, God is just as tired as you are of Saul. And remember, Saul was behaving wickedly. He was treating David unfairly. And God was taking the throne away from Saul and was raising up David to be the next king of Israel. So David's men encouraged him. David, 
apparently God's delivered Saul into your hands while he's right over there on the other side of that rock and as vulnerable as can be, just go strike him. Just go kill him and leave him here in this cave and, and just a quicker path to the throne. David, why delay any longer? Apparently, this is your opportunity. And what they were, in a sense, encouraging David to do, unfortunately, was to take matters into his own hands and to kind of expedite the plan of God, to try and hurry up and push forward more quickly what God was ultimately going to do, which was to completely remove Saul and to deal with Saul and to give David the throne. And that was ultimately God's plan. But what David was wise enough to understand is, look, it is not my responsibility nor my right or role to take matters into my own hand. That's God's prerogative. And it is God's plan and God's promise. And so therefore, if something is God's plan, it is God, the one who should perform it in the way and the time and the path that he intends. And I should not seek to put my hand in to manipulate the process or speed it along or expedite it. And remember, that was when David said, God forbid that I touch the Lord's anointed. And David refused to follow the instructions of his men to put Saul to death in that moment. But I imagine it must have been a very precarious type situation as David realizes, boy, I could just put an end to, to Saul. I could deal with this situation. And who wouldn't want to get out of misery, right? I mean, David was living a miserable existence. When you're in a miserable and a hard time, who doesn't want to get out of it more quickly? I mean, that must have been a real temptation for David and his humanity to try and just take matters into his own hand and fix the problem himself. But David resisted that because he wanted to trust the Lord. But at the same time, he also realized by not putting Saul to death, he left himself at risk. I mean, he kind of left himself to continue to carry on being more at risk and more vulnerable. And his life was constantly in jeopardy. So in David not putting Saul to uh, to death in that moment, he also was leaving himself still constantly vulnerable to the attack of Saul and to his men, even if they doubled back and found David in there. And so this was an act of faith as well. In a sense, God, I'm not going to take matters in my own hands, and I'm also going to continue to trust me, to protect me, to preserve me, to, to sustain me, to get me through the season until ultimately you bring me to the other side of this difficult experience in your timetable. So it's in that backdrop, to some degree, David says these words, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. Notice he says, for my soul trusts in you. God, I've done my fair share of things wrong and you've shown me mercy. And, and, and he's saying, God, I need your mercy and, and I am not going to exert myself into this situation and try and force or make something happen. He says, God, be merciful to me. Help me to stay humble and not to try and stick my hand in there and make something happen for my own personal advantage to rush along a process because I want something sooner for myself and my own personal desires. And he says, God, my soul, again, the soul speaks of the inward man. He says, my soul trusts in you. God, I'm going to trust you in your timetable to do what I believe and I know is your plan. I'm going to trust you to bring about your promises. And God, I trust you to preserve me until that happens. I trust that you are going to continue to sustain me and my soul trusts in you rather than an unbelief beginning to manipulate things in my fleshly endeavors. He says, and in the shadow of your wings, 
I will make my refuge. And again, a refuge speaks of a place of protection. In the shadow of your wings, I will take my safety. The idea there is in the same way that a, a little chick would kind of kind of hide underneath the mother hen's wings and, and provide protection. David's looking at God in this way, and he's saying, God, I'm going to hide and take refuge in you. I'm going to trust you to be my protection and, and to keep me safe. Notice he says, verse 1, until these calamities have passed. Until these difficult times pass, Lord, I'm going to trust you to shield me through the difficult times. And again, take notice, David went through his fair share of calamities. That's a hard word, calamity. Nobody likes going through a calamity in life, a tragedy. I mean, right? these are the words we never want to come into our experience. A difficulty, that's bad enough. But Lord, not a calamity, not a tragedy. But apparently that is a part of our lives' journeys. And David was going through times and when he referred to Lord until these calamities I mean David had gone through some real difficult things but he says until these things pass by but what David understood is that life comes in seasons and even if we go through a tragedy or a calamity notice David recognized these things eventually they pass by like a storm right when, when a storm comes even the worst of storms a tornado a hurricane something like that they don't stay forever. They come and, and, and a storm passes by. It passes through. So he says, Lord, until the storm passes by, I'm just going to trust in you with all my soul and let you preserve me and sustain me until I get through the other side of this hardship. He says, verse two, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. Again, David says, Lord, I'm going to look to you more than that. I cry out to you again, like a dependent child, like an infant cries out to their parent because they, they're incapable of doing anything on their own, right? When they're, they're infants, they're, they're very young. They can't change themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't content themselves. They're just fully dependent upon their parent. And here, this is the picture, not just asking God, but sometimes even we're crying out to God in desperation, in utter dependence. And I love the statement David makes there in verse two. He says, I'm going to cry out to God most high who performs all things for me. That's called living a life of faith. Living a life of dependency upon God where you actually give God the opportunity to work. And you actually, by faith, on occasion, don't perform things or push things or try and make things happen on your own. And again, that's what David had just resisted, right? And you can imagine afterwards, David's uh, you know, comrades around him saying, David, you, why did you pass up that opportunity? We could have been done with this whole cave experience and living like refugees. Why didn't you just perform that simple act? I mean, just get rid of the guy. It's justified. He's been hassling you. The guy's off the rails. And David says, no, no, no. God will perform for me what needs to be done on my behalf. And David lived a life of confidence in God. And how wonderful is it not when we give God the chance to work by prayer and faith, and we actually get to see God perform things for us. Whether it's God orchestrating some circumstance where he finally brings a change of events, or he finally deals with a situation or deals with maybe a person who we're having a real difficult time with, 
and God finally works in their heart or changes their mind or brings the turn of events or, or God finally opens the door and we go, wow, that was the Lord. The Lord performed that. There's no way that door would have opened, but God gives the opportunity or performs something or fulfills maybe some promise or comes through with this provision. And, and how wonderful the confidence David had because he had seen God do it before and that gave him confidence God would do it again. He says, I'm gonna trust in God who performs all things for me. In Psalm 138, there the psalmist declares, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. You know, what, what is it tonight that you're thinking, I don't know, there's just no way and I don't know how to perform and make that happen. Perhaps God wants to perform that for you. What if it's a matter of waiting for God to perform what needs to be done so that you can see his power work? And how wonderful to know that like a good father, that he's able to do things that, that we can't as his insufficient and weak children can. But when we pray and we ask God to work, he delights to do things for us. So many of his promises and the power working on our behalf. He says, I'm gonna cry out to God most high because he is who performs all things for me. Let God perform for you what he needs to accomplish in your life. He says, verse three, confidently, he shall send from heaven and save me, deliver me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up and God shall send forth, David says, his mercy and his truth. That word mercy is that Hebrew term that speaks of just that unfailing kindness of love. So he's talking about the unfailing love of God, the love of God that never lets us down. You know, we sing that song, your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. There are a lot of things in this life that fail, that wear out, that give up on us, that aren't you know, continually consistent in our life. But I love that song, your love never fails. That's what never gives up. That's something that never runs out on me. It's always there. And he says, God will send from heaven. And look what he says is he shall send forth his unfailing love, his merciful kindness. And he shall send forth from heaven, he says, his truth. And that, and that word truth there literally in the Hebrew speaks the idea of trustworthiness. So he's talking about here God's, his truth in the sense of God's trustworthy faithfulness. The idea is that God never falls short. God never lets us down. He's reliable. He's dependable. His trustworthy faithfulness always comes forth in answer to our prayers. Now, verse four, you can see what David's dealing with. He says, my soul is among lions. The picture of a, again, something that's ferocious, that wants to devour its prey. He says, my soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire. That is, there's great passion, like a burning fire to ruin and destroy David's life. Whose teeth, he describes them, are as spears and arrows, weapons. People's teeth want to chew you up and devour your life. And their tongue, he says, their tongue, their words are like a sharp sword, piercing and wounding and cutting. Be exalted, David says, verse five, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be above all the earth. So notice, in the midst of all these things, what David's doing, how he's trying to handle it, the way that he's responding, crying out to God in prayer, asking God to perform things on his behalf rather than trying to force something to happen the way that he wants it to for his own advantage. Notice what David's chief concern is, verse five. 
This is, this is why his heart was where it was. He says, God, I just want you to be exalted. My, my biggest desire, God, is I want your glory and your exaltation to be the end result. He just wanted to see God glorified. And I'll tell you, when you have that kind of a heart attitude, that your greatest desire, that no matter what happens in your life, is you just want to see God glorified, you're going to make good decisions, you're going to make healthy choices, and you're going to navigate things in the spirit because your heart is going to be, whatever happens, Lord, I just want you to be glorified. And we're going to see David's going to say this again at the end of the psalm as well, that this was his number one priority, that just God would be glorified. He says, verse 6, they've prepared a net for my steps, so they were trying to entrap him. My soul was bowed down, so David was was feeling discouraged. Again, that's a draining experience, somebody constantly hassling you. I mean, maybe in your job, you have somebody who constantly hassles you, and it just, it just wears you down, right? I'm just, they're just wearing me down, man. Or somebody who's just a draining person or always you know, giving you a hard time, and it just kind of you know, bows down your soul when you just feel worn out by it all. Sometimes we, we feel that experience. You just feel bowed down with the weight of something that you're under, if maybe something's happening with you and another person. He says, they've dug a pit for me. Into the midst of it, they themselves, however, have fallen. He says, Selah, or think about that. The idea is what they sought to do to David. God didn't let it work, but let it just come to pass on their head instead. He says, verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast, and I will sing and give praise. Now, when David says here, my heart is steadfast, he says it twice there in verse 7. That word steadfast speaks of being fixed in a position. The idea is is unmoved. My heart is steady, he's saying. My heart is unwavering. And I like that this was David's determination, you might say, in the midst of the difficult things he was going through. Again, the idea is, reminds me of what Paul said in the New Testament, where Paul was speaking in Acts chapter 20, and Paul says, Everywhere that I go, the Holy Spirit keeps testifying to me that chains and tribulations await me. In other words, Paul was saying, the only thing I keep sensing from the Holy Spirit is that what's in front of me is going to be really hard. I don't really know what's ahead, but I just sense that more chains, more imprisonments, more hardships, more trials. He says, I keep sensing that the Holy Spirit is telling me, Paul, the days ahead... They're, they're going to be difficult. There are going to be some hard things you're going to have to navigate through. And then Paul says, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy and the task that's been given to me to faithfully preach the gospel. In other words, Paul said, yes, I know that there are hard things happening now, and I can sense there's hard things ahead, that it's not going to necessarily be easy. But Paul says, I'm not going to let that move me. I'm going to stay determined and stay on course. I'm going to keep my heart fixed and steady. And, and again, just Paul was a, one of those kind of men that just had that spiritual grit. That's what I love about Paul the Apostle. I mean, he was just a man with a spiritual backbone. You know, would to God by his grace that he would give to us at times that measure of spiritual grit and a little spiritual backbone to at times be steadfast, to be genuinely a word that's kind of disappearing from our culture. It's that old word, committed 
And actually at times to say, you know, it doesn't matter whether life's easy or life is difficult, whether I'm feeling up or I'm feeling down, I'm going to stay committed to God. My heart is going to be steadfast and fixed and unwavering. I tell you, I, I love how it says of Jesus, that it says that Jesus, that his gaze became fixed towards Jerusalem, the Gospel of Luke tells us. And the idea there is, Again, understand, Jesus was living in a body as a man, just like you and I, which means he had all the same, you know, feelings and nerve sensations. I mean, he was living in a body of flesh, and he knew the agony that he was going to go through in the suffering that he would endure as they beat him and ripped out his beard and, you know, and as he was whipped and scourged and pierced on the cross. And Jesus knew all that was in front of him, but yet he didn't turn away from it. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it says that he fixed his gaze towards Jerusalem. The idea is like a, like, like, you know, like a solid stone that his mind was set and determined. My heart is steadfast. I'm going to do the will of God. And here, David, you see that same thing. Though in the midst of hardship, he says, Lord, yes, it's not easy, but I'm trusting in you, and my heart is going to remain steadfast. And he says, and I'm going to sing and give praise. I mean, how do you keep yourself encouraged? David says, I'm just going to keep worshiping the Lord. I'm just going to keep singing to the Lord and giving praise to the Lord instead of focusing on the hard things and this is wrong and that's not right. And David says, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm just going to focus on the Lord. And that truly helps when you're in a cave, right? When times are hard, sometimes you got to just determine to just keep going. You got to determine to remain faithful to God. And you even got to determine to just keep worshiping the Lord. You just worship your way through the difficulty and let God deal with your heart and bring you to the other side. He says, verse 8, awake my glory, awake lute and harp. David, we know, was a musician. He enjoyed using stringed instruments. He would sing songs to the Lord. And he says there, verse 8, and I will awaken the dawn. He says, I'm not going to let the dawn awaken me. He says, I'm going to awaken the dawn. David just speaking of how he would be up early. He would begin the day as the day would begin to dawn. He says, I would begin the day looking to the Lord, worshiping the Lord. I can picture him. In some ways, I envy him because I tried a few times to play the guitar. Just isn't there for me. And, and I can imagine, you know, just David, just, you know, taking a copy, a scroll or two of the word of God and his harp and just going out and maybe at the opening of the cave so he didn't wake up, wake up the rest of the cave dwellers who like to sleep in and not awaken the dawn. And there are some of those in every tribe. They don't want to you know, get up early, but David just would go out and he says, I'm just going to awaken the dawn with worship and praise. There's something so precious about just the quiet early morning hours things aren't happening yet people aren't asking questions or making demands yet and david says the way i sustain myself is i just awaken the dawn by spending time with god alone and worshiping him and that's what strengthened no doubt his soul to carry on through such times and kept him sustained though he was in a cave-like experience he says i will praise you verse nine look where he concludes again Back in a right place, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations. For your mercy, there's that word again, your unfailing love, God. Your unfailing love, it reaches unto the heavens. That is how high God's unfailing love and mercy is. And your truth, your great faithfulness and trustworthiness, 
It extends to the clouds, and he concludes again, verse 11, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Again, as I said earlier, there's that phrase repeated again from verse 5, which shows you again, why was this David's mindset in the midst of what he's going through? Because David's greatest concern in his situation, though it was hard, was number one, what can I do to glorify God? And I tell you, that is a very healthy and a very right mindset. If you have someone who, you know, if you're someone who takes notes, let me just read to you from First Peter chapter four something that Peter says, which reminds me of David here. That is our instruction as Christians. As Peter wrote about suffering, he said this: First Peter four verse sixteen. Listen to what he says. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, wait a minute. Christians aren't supposed to suffer, isn't that what some teach? There must be sin in your life if you're suffering as a Christian. You must not have enough faith if you're suffering as a Christian. But isn't it interesting? The Holy Spirit who gave to us the word of God says, if anyone suffers as a Christian. Apparently God disagrees with that theology because God says sometimes Christians suffer, even by divine design, that it's a part of God's plan and purpose to allow us to endure sufferings. So this is what Peter's advice under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, embarrassed or ashamed that they're suffering, but here's the key, let him glorify God in this matter. Let him glorify God in this matter that is the matter of suffering. Please hang on to that truth because I tell you this, when you go through times that you suffer, and you and I will suffer in all different ways. A lot of times we don't know what to do, how to handle it. It's confusing. It's dark. It's difficult. You know, we're, we're trying to process it all. But in every situation where you suffer as a Christian, you can determine to do one thing singular. God, I don't know why this is happening or what to do or how to handle it. But Lord, what I do know is in this matter of suffering, how can I glorify you? And you can look at any situation that you suffer through and say, you know what? Here's what I can do. God, how can I glorify you in the midst of the hard thing I'm going through? What can I do and how I act and behave and speak and how I handle this? And I tell you, that is to be the Christian mindset. Let me glorify you, God, in this matter of suffering. And when we do that, God works wonders as he's honored by him servants in the way that we handle ourselves. Psalm 58, David says to the chief musician, said again to that famous tune, do not destroy. And David here may give an indication of what this tune was like, another miktam of David. Here he speaks about the unrighteous judges who were ruling in the land at that time. David was frustrated by this. Maybe he was thinking of Saul and some of the others who were ruling and governing in very ungodly ways, very selfish, abusing their authority, taking their power and doing harmful and unethical things in the way they treated the people and governing in a way that was destructive to the society and the people in the land. I know you can't relate in any way to that. Just try and, just try and think it through in case it happens someday. He says, verse 1, Do you indeed speak righteousness you silent ones do you judge uprightly you sons of men and then he answers these were rhetorical questions no 
in heart you work wickedness and you weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. So David was frustrated because as he watched those who were judges in the land at that time who should have been making judicial decisions that were righteous, that were bringing about what was just and best for the people, instead they were being silent upon what was right. That is, they weren't speaking out the truth. They were refraining. They were being passive. They were resisting from speaking up when they should speak up and kind of identifying what's wrong and speaking of what was right. And he says, in their heart, they were promoting works of wickedness and they were weighing out violence. Isn't that interesting? The idea is they were making judgments as judicial leaders in a way that were actually promoting the destruction of life. They were judges who were ruling in a way whereby there was more violence and more death and more putting to death of innocent lives than there was saving lives, promoting life, liberty, these kind of things. They were doing the exact opposite. And David was greatly bothered by this. And understandably why? Because God is a good judge and that's completely inconsistent with the greatest judge, which is God himself. And sadly, those many times who are in places of judicial authority, they rule in ways unethically and unrighteously because they fail to recognize that there is a much higher court than the Supreme Court or any court that exists in the land. There is a much higher court with a much more righteous and authoritative judge. And sadly, that is disregarded so often in the judges of men often rule in very unhealthy ways. And we see the same thing happening in our society as well in these current days. People just, you know, you know, refusing to protect life, being silent about what's right, promoting what's wrong. It just, you know, again, it's a very bothersome thing. And you can tell, look at David's response. Maybe you can resonate with his heart. Look what he says, verse three. He says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. And interesting, notice David's referring to how people are not in right relationship with God from birth. He's referring to here what we call the depravity of man, that literally the Bible teaches, it's all throughout, that from the womb, from the moment that we are born, we are naturally inclined to go astray. We are naturally inclined and magnetically kind of drawn away from doing what's wrong. And as he thinks of the wicked who were doing these things, he says, you have been out of relationship with God from the womb. From the moment that you were born, he says, you you began speaking lies, being false. And again, this is, again, just the greatest testimony of this is just as we watch children develop. No child comes out of the womb and behaves considerately of others, right? I mean, if you could hear what they're saying inside of that crib or they have the strength, they would break the bars down. I mean, they're naturally born from earth. In fact, you know, there was actually studies that, that were done. I you know, heard about one time before where some doctors actually uh, studied for a while the first month, the first 30 or so days of a newborn. And they believe, you know, whether it's true or not, they believe that by the end of 30 days that newborns instinctively can tell that, that, that by their screams and their throwing fits that people will attend to them. 
which just goes to show you within the first 30 days, they already know how to work manipulative, selfish behavior. If I scream in this way, they'll come in here at two o'clock in the morning. If I scream in this way, they'll check my diaper. They'll give me something to eat. They'll coddle me and, you know, pay attention to me. And again, from birth, we are naturally inclined to be selfish, to be estranged from God, and even to begin to be dishonest. He says they go astray as soon as they're born and they begin speaking lies. And again, any of us who've ever raised children or any of us who one time were children, I assure you, none of us ever had anybody teach us how to be deceptive, dishonest, right? We never had to sit down one of our children and say, look, next time you get in trouble. So next time mom says to you, why is there chocolate all over your face? Here's a better story. Just tell her, but we don't have to tell our kids that. They naturally know how to be dishonest, to make up lies, to try and cover what they do wrong because it is ingrained with all of us we are depraved spiritually from birth. And, and, you know, interesting, Isaiah 48 literally calls us transgressors from the womb. Boy, isn't that encouraging? <laughs> transgressors from the womb. But that's why we need salvation. Because from the womb, we transgress and we are drawn to do what's wrong. That's why we needed Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and why we need his salvation to put us into right relationship with God. David says of these who are judging and ruling crookedly, verse four, their poison, the idea is like their venom of what they're doing is like the poison of a serpent, deadly and harmful. They're, they are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear. They actually say cobras apparently don't have the ability to hear, but they move according to not the sound they hear, but actual vibrations when they're being charmed, that that's what they're actually responding to, the vibrations. So he says they're like deaf cobras. They don't want to hear anything, right? They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to respond to anything that's right. Their ears are closed off, which will not heed the voice of the charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Look at verse six. Tell us how you feel, David. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. You think David's a little bit upset? I mean, he's praying. You want to talk about raw honesty with God? Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions. Now, look, give David credit. David's not saying, I'm going to break their teeth, God. Please forgive me afterwards. That's not what he's saying. David's saying, God, you deal with them. But he's saying, God, I am so bothered by what they're doing because like poisonous vipers, their venom is poisoning people. They are harming people. They are causing innocent lives to be put to death and they are harming and destroying people. So David simply says, God, would you deal with them strongly? And look, you can't be a part of any society or watch certain you know, certainly even, for example, even dicta evil dictators that have come on the scene throughout history. I mean, Hitler and Stalin and, I mean, people who have done horrible things to societies and cultures and even those perhaps who are doing things today. You can't watch that with a righteous heart attitude and not at a certain point begin to some degree to feel passionate about God. Please deal with these people. God, break them, stop them, do whatever you have to do. And that's really where David's heart is at here. David is just bothered in a righteous heart attitude because he sees the harm it's doing to people. 
He sees the ruinous things that happen when evil people use their authority to destroy rather than the help. And again, the idea of breaking the teeth of a lion or breaking the fangs of a lion, the idea is God, their teeth and their fangs are what make them have the capacity to harm people. So God's saying, just stop their ability, render them powerless, God. Take their ability to bite and devour away from them And he's saying, do what's necessary. Let them flow away as waters, which run continually. When he bends his bow, God says, he says, God, when they try and launch their arrows or launch their policies, when they bend their bow and they're ready to launch something, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. God, let it not hit its target. Let it fail. Let it fall short, even in the votes. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman that may not see the sun. Again, put an end, God says, to any progress of what they're trying to do. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. So David speaks there of how at times God's wrath is stirred and how quickly when God's wrath is stirred, God can put an end in his severity of his judgment to anything or to anyone if his judgment comes upon it. He speaks of the burning of thorns. Again, in that day, speaking of the bramble wood and how if you threw just bramble wood into the fire, it would be consumed super fast. It would just evaporate in the fire very quickly. But he says when God judges, he can come and take them away even quicker than that. As with a whirlwind, God's whirlwind of judgment can come blowing through and his living and burning wrath can bring quick judgment. You don't want to strive against God. That's why the Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. He says, verse 10, the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, Again, the idea here is not rejoicing over their destruction. The idea is rejoicing over God taking just and righteous vengeance on evil. And so he's saying it would do the heart good of someone who sees wrongdoing happening to see God bring proper vengeance and deal with evil people who are harming others. Verse 11, so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. So notice, God will judge severely and deal with wrongdoing, but in the same way on the other side of the scale, we should never grow weary in well-doing or good doing for in the proper season the Bible says we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. And David reflects here when we become weary in doing what's righteous when everyone else maybe is doing what's wrong and unrighteous, David says I rejoice in knowing God will deal with them and that also verse 11 that surely there is a reward for the righteous. And and Jesus assured his disciples of this very same thing. Reminds me of what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 18 when he was speaking to the disciples, maybe on occasion when they were wondering, you know, is this all worth it, what we're doing, the sacrifices we're making, other people are living like this, and we're making commitments and sacrifices and giving up things for the sake of following Jesus. It tells us that Peter said to Jesus in Luke chapter 18, he said, Lord, see, we have left all and followed you. Peter was, was wrestling. Lord, we've left certain things. We've given up certain things to follow you. And Jesus said to Peter, 
Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children. The idea is family for the sake of the kingdom of God. That is for some calling of the gospel or to serve the Lord in some greater way to follow what the Lord was leading you to do for his kingdom's sake. Who shall not receive many times more in the present time and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus gives this promise when we wrestle with, you know, the Lord was leading me to do this to follow him. Or the Lord was was guiding me and therefore I actually had to displease a family member. Or maybe I lost the approval of a family member, even lost a relationship with a family member because I was following Jesus or doing something to answer the call of God, which meant I had to move away to a new area to follow the Lord's plan for my life. Or, or maybe we had to give up some material possession. He speaks of leaving a, a house or giving things up for the sake of the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, who shall not receive as well in this life, he will reward and honor that. And he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. The idea is that we may lose a relationship for following Jesus, But in this life, Jesus can give us new relationships. He can give us brothers and sisters in Christ and spiritual family to fill the void sometimes. We may give up something for the Lord to follow some plan or purpose of his life. Times I've seen that unfold in our lives and the Lord always gives it back. He always gives it back. He always finds a way to still reward us and take care of us in this life. And the Bible says in the age to come as well, there will be reward also let's look at psalm 59 quickly together this psalm is a psalm of david at the time when it says saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him now we know the setting here is first samuel chapter 19 and that was around a time it gives you a little bit of a setting when david was about 20 years old so again david wrote this psalm at a time maybe somewhere 20 to 25 years old he's a young man He had been faithfully serving in the palace under Saul. Saul increasingly was growing more jealous of David because they said Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands, and God was blessing David's life and using David, and Saul kept growing more and more insecure and having animosity towards David because he sensed God's hand was on David's life, and he was throwing spears at David and giving David a hard time. And then ultimately, as a way to try and even ensnare David, he purposely gave David one of his daughters, Michal, Michael, however you want to pronounce it, who he believed would actually trip up David. That's always a good reminder to me. You know, the, the Bible says that he who finds a wife, that is the one that God wants for you, finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. But in the same way that you can find the wife that God has from you and she brings favor into your life, apparently your enemy, let's say Saul's a picture of the devil, would also gladly give you a wife that can become a tremendous snare to you. And that's what Michael became for David. Saul gave David this wife particularly to try and ensnare him and to trap him. And on one occasion, his father-in-law Saul sent men to the house 
Michael tried to hide that David was there. She put a little statue in the bed and some goats here and said, you better get out of here. My father's going to come and he's going to kill you. And the men came and they said, where's David? She said, oh, he's over there. He's got goat's hair disease. See him laying in the bed there because there was a bunch of goat's hair in the bed. And well, we don't want to touch that. So we, we, we better stay out of here. They go back and Saul says, go back there. Get him in his bed. I don't care. Bring him in his sick bed here. I'll kill him myself. Well, this was the setting where David, as he was trying to elude Saul's men and presence killing him, said, verse 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from these workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. These men, like bloodthirsty men, were there to put David to death under Saul's order. For they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. And he says, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. So this was David's quandary. Here are these men outside the door lurking, ready to murder and to kill David. And there was no just cause to do it. And David says, Lord, I try and do what's right. You put your calling on my life. I try and be faithful in my commitment there in the palace. I serve Saul. I try and be consistent and faithful and honor you and glorify you. And this is what I get. It's not like I did something sinful, he says, some transgression or sin through no fault of mine. He says, I do everything that's right and I'm having all these problems and all these people are giving me a hard time and against me and want to harm me and hurt me and look. Sometimes that's the quandary we find themselves in, right? Sometimes we follow the Lord, and instead of life getting better, sometimes it gets worse. Because Jesus said, if the world hated me, don't be surprised if the world hates you. The Bible even says sometimes our greatest enemies can even be those of our own household. That was Saul for David. It was his father-in-law who was making his life miserable. His father-in-law was literally trying to murder him. And you think your life's bad. I don't know. But David was going through all these hard things and he was not doing anything necessarily wrong. But sometimes as we do what's right, we still run into the interference of spiritual warfare and problems. So what does David do again? He cries out, Lord, this is this is your problem. You said that I was called to be the next king. They're going to put me to death. So he says, awake to help me. Behold, God, see what they're doing. You, therefore, O Lord God, he says of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Don't just punish them, God. While you're at it, punish all the nations. <laughs> he just says, God, if you're going to deal with it, you might as well just deal with everyone. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. He then describes the men lurking around the house. Verse 6, at evening they return. They growl like a dog. They're like ferocious dogs out there. They go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth swords are in their lips their words are piercing and painful and sometimes that's the greatest wound people who speak and their their words and their lips are like piercing swords cause great hurt to us for they say who hears but you O lord shall laugh at them you shall have all nations in derision or contempt in other words he says they may think they're getting away with things but lord he says no one overrides you no one overrides the plan of God. Men may think they're getting away with something. We're going to put David to death. He's not going to become the next king of Israel. We're going to murder him. But he says, Lord, you laugh at the plans of men. 
because nobody's going to overrule what God's ultimately going to do. So he says, verse 9, in light of that, I will wait for you, O you his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. The idea is to see my desire on my enemies. He's saying, God shall give me triumph, is what he's saying. God's going to give me triumph over my enemies. Again, notice David's posture of faith. Again, he's in a tough spot, but he says, Lord, your plan is what's unfolding in my life, and no one can hinder your final plan for me. It doesn't matter what people try and do to me or how they come against me. Lord, it is your plan for me and your hand is upon me. So he says, Lord, I'm just going to wait for you to act. And when I feel weary, Lord, he says, oh, Lord, you are my strength. And I like that because sometimes we get very wearied in our battles in life and we feel worn out. But how wonderful to know that God doesn't just give us strength. He actually is our strength. I love the New Testament promise that says that he shall strengthen us with might and power by his spirit in the inward man. Romans 8 says that he can strengthen our mortal body. So whether it's physical strength or just strengthening your soul and your spirit when you feel worn down, he says, God is my defense. And look, when God's your defense, you are safe. You don't have to defend yourself. My God of mercy shall come to meet me, says verse 10. That is, God, you'll meet me right where I'm at. The idea is, the picture there is God coming to meet you right in the midst of what you're going through, and he stands in it with you. God will come and meet me. Look, whatever you're going through tonight or whatever you may go through, here's the wonderful thing. God will meet you right where you're at. Whatever you're going through, whatever you have to deal with, God will not only come and strengthen you, but he will meet you in the midst of that. I love the story in Daniel's account where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember they're tossed into the fiery furnace. And then they look and they say, wait a minute, didn't we throw three men in there? How is it that we see a fourth man in there with them? One who looks like the son of God. And there Jesus came right in the midst of the fiery furnace and he stood there with them and it says that they were preserved and the fire didn't harm them. They weren't ruined and destroyed. What should have absolutely wrecked them and ruined them, it says they didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. The Lord met them right in the midst of their fiery trial. He was their defense and he stood with them right where they are. How wonderful that God meets us and God will meet you and You can count on that, Lord. Come and meet me. Meet me right where I'm at. I need your help. He says, verse 11, God, and do not slay them. The idea is don't get rid of them quickly. Just scatter them by your power because he wanted people to see what God was doing. And bring them down, O Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouth. God, deal with them for the sins of their mouth and the words of their lips. Let them even be taken in their pride. The Bible says that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. David knew, Lord, their mouths are sinning, their hearts are proud, they they are setting up their own downfall and cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath, consume them that they may not be and let them know, that is they and all who are watching, that's why David just wanted them scattered instead of destroyed. Let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. God work in such a way that people will realize 
you're in charge. And you know, that really should be our heart to see God glorified and to see people recognize you're not in charge. God's in charge. You may think you're in charge because you got a little title behind your name or you're the most powerful person on the earth. Or, you're not in charge. There is a ruler who is much greater than you that is on a throne. Again, remember when you know, Jesus and Pilate were dialoguing and you, don't you realize who I am? And Jesus said, don't you realize the only reason you have the position you have is because God's allowed you to have that position? And Jesus just called him right out on that. You would have no power at all, he says, unless the Father in heaven had given to you that ability to rule. And something that sadly is often overlooked, he says, God, let people know. Let people know that you're the one that's ruling. And at evening, he says, they return, they growl like a dog, they go around the city, they wander up and down for food. They had these like scavenger dogs howling if they're not satisfied. Here's David dealing with all these hassles. And where does he come back to again? But... I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in church. Now, wait a minute. What does that say there? In the morning. In the morning. David said, well, I'm going to sing when I go to church. He said, no, I'm going to sing in the morning. I'm just going to, I'm going to awaken the day by just singing to the Lord and worshiping. You know, what a great way to begin your day, to sing to the Lord, to sing aloud of his mercy and his power. For you have been my defense and my refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, my strength, I will sing praises for God is my defense, my God of mercy. Again, David just teaches us such incredible wisdom in navigating life's hardships. As I've said so many times before, did he go through hard times, troublesome situations, difficult things? Did he have emotional highs and emotional lows? and thoughts that he struggled with, and people dealing with him in unfair ways. Yeah, David dealt with all the human challenges that you and I go through as well. And so many times we see David's, he's wrestling through it, he's talking through it, he's praying through it, but he always puts his focus back on God. And that's where he always lands at the end. Yes, this, and oh, I'm going to break their teeth, God, and they're like a bunch of dogs. But Lord, I'm so glad that you're good. So glad that you're powerful. In fact, Lord, I'm just I'm just gonna sing a song to you right now. Just I'm gonna I'm tired of thinking about them. I'm not gonna sing the blues. I'm gonna sing a worship song. And look, can I encourage you in the remainder of this week, whatever you're going through, you can choose to sing the blues all day long, or you can choose to worship. One will make you miserable. The other will alleviate stress and angst and depression and discouragement without even a prescription. As your focus is on the Lord and you become grateful and thankful that God is good and he has power and he knows you and he's your help and he's your defense and it can shift your whole focus in a completely different way. One of the greatest things you can do, drive to work, get up in the morning, sing a worship song. Sing to the Lord in the morning and watch what it does for the rest of your day.